For the past five years, Lucas Cooper has been the lead pastor of a thriving multi-ethnic church in the heart of Toronto, Canada. Founded in 1941, Bayview Glen Church has a rich history of biblical teaching and outreach, and the congregation includes people from 100 different nationalities. No stranger to SBC, Lucas formerly served on staff here as worship leader and then as pastor of our venue community. Please welcome home, Pastor Lucas Cooper. nice to see you. Uh, there's a critical question that faces the church today. There's a critical question that faces culture today, a highly relevant question that's on the minds of lots of folks. Uh, and that question really is represented on Time Magazine's cover a couple of times. Look up here on the screen. Time Magazine says, is the Bible fact or fiction? Another cover up here, can we trust the Bible or how True is the Bible, Time Magazine wonders. And in a world of fake news, have you heard of the fake news? <laughs> in a world where fact is sometimes confused with fiction, when truth is confused with falsehood, when we're not sure who or what to trust, even the Bible is being undermined in parts of our society and culture, and we're not even sure what to do with it in the church sometimes. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a face of the modern atheist movement. He wrote this about the Bible. He said, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to, each, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. It's 15 centuries, but that's beside the point. So the modern atheist movement would say that the Bible is not trustworthy. It's been revised, changed, edited over time. It's not accurate. It's not trustworthy. And even in the church, we've kind of changed the way we look at the Bible and understand the Bible and have warped it, twisted it, changed it because of what's going on in culture around us. And so the critical question that we're faced with this morning is, can I trust the Bible? Those 66 books compiled together, canonized and revered by the church and that lead us uh, to the throne. Can we trust that book? And the way that you answer this question is absolutely critical. Listen, because you could learn about Jesus of Nazareth from history, can't you? You could learn about his crucifixion from history, but you can't learn that that crucifixion atoned for your sin apart from the scripture. Uh, you could learn from history that the tomb was indeed empty, but you can only learn from, you can learn from history that the tomb was empty, but you can only learn from scripture that Jesus rose again on the third day. The way we answer this question, is the Bible a trustworthy document, is absolutely critical. And this is the question that faces us this morning. So as we endeavor to answer it, would you pray with me? God, we thank you for those in this place here in the worship center, uh, just across the way at the venue and the chapel, those joining us online, those down the street at Cactus Campus. I'm just even thankful for the uh, pastors in those places, Rick, who I got a text from last night, and, and Rustin, a good friend, and Neil here. We are just, uh, I'm, I'm personally just grateful for the staff and elders here at Scottsdale Bible Church and for Jamie and his friendship and mentorship to me. Uh, this always feels like coming home. But God, our goal this morning, as we gather as one church in many locations, is to affirm the trustworthiness 
the veracity, the reliability of your word. So Spirit of God, speak to us and press upon hearts that you have revealed yourself through the Bible. May yours be the only voice that's heard in this place today. In the name of Jesus, the people of God together said, Amen. Well, the video introduced me and Neil did too. But for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Lucas. I served here on staff for six wonderful years. Uh, I actually served for eight years on staff, but six of them were wonderful. The other two were really horrible. Um, That was when Jamie was my direct supervisor. So that was really... No, I absolutely love Jamie. He's become a friend to me and a mentor. He's actually preached for me up in, uh, up in Canada at Bayview Glen Church. Neil, uh, who's the campus pastor here, will be at Bay- Bayview Glen in August. Rustin has preached a couple of times at Bayview Glen. So I just, you know, I just keep leaning on you guys, Scottsdale Bible Church. But I need uh, someone to come fill the pulpit and knock it out of the park. I'm calling, I'm calling this, this crew. So uh, my wife and I have been married for 12 years. We have a little girl. Her name is Kaya. You'll see her at the end. She'll run up here and say, Daddy, and you'll see a picture of her. She's almost four. Uh, the last two summers, we've talked about this, we've had a couple of failed adoptions, but we're matched with another birth mom that's due August 4. A uh, little boy on the way, hopefully. Uh, so that's that's what's going on in my life personally. In the life of our church, we've grown from a church of about 400 to a church of about 1,200. We would have over 120 nationalities represented on any given Sunday morning at Bayview Glen since Toronto's the most multi-ethnic city in the world. We'd have about 70 different mother tongues represented. We got a gal that comes on a regular basis wearing the full hijab, right, with the slit in the eyes and all black because she wants to get to know Jesus a little bit and uh, investigate the claims of Christ. It's always great when she comes up to me and asks me questions about the notes that she takes in my sermon because she takes them in Arabic. So she's reading them back to me right to left in Arabic. And I'm going, I have no idea what's happening. This is really cool. This is really cool. We have a group of about uh, 12 lesbian refugees that sit together every week and they come to investigate the claims of Christ and, and hear about him and his great love for them. And they think my jokes are funny, so I'm so glad they're there. Um, we've got people from everywhere and every different walk of life. About 60% of our congregation would say that they did not attend a Christian church before they attended Bayview Glen Church. About 40% of our congregation would say that they're either new to faith or not a person of faith yet. And so the reason that I did this sermon, Can I Trust the Bible for that congregation, it really is a reflection of or a response to the demographics and the people that God has brought uh, in that place. But I will tell you that it's extremely applicable even to those who have been walking with Jesus for 50 or 60 years like many of you have. It's extremely applicable even in the western part of the U.S. and Canada where people are a little more churched, let's say, because Toronto is more of a postmodern, post-Christian culture closer to Europe. It's even applicable for us. Can we trust the scripture? And Webster's Dictionary defines trust this way, that it's a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or, of, or strength of someone or something. It's a confidence, belief, certainty, reliance. So let's ask this question a number of different ways. Can we have confidence in the Bible? Can we place our belief, our certainty in the Bible? Can we rely upon the Bible? Is it strong enough to uphold us? Can 
Can we trust the Bible? And I would affirm to you against Dawkins that the Bible is a trustworthy document. Why? Because Paul confirms in, first Tim, or in Timothy, as he writes to his protege Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The key, work here, key word here is God-breathed. In the original language, that word is theonoustos. It's two words combined together, theos meaning God, noustos meaning breath. In other words, the scripture, the Bible, is the very breath of God. So picture it this way. Right now, you in this place, venue, cactus, those listening online, uh, you're hearing the breath of chapel. You're hearing the breath of Lucas Cooper because what's happening is my lungs are pushing air up over my vocal cords. My vocal cords are vibrating and you are hearing my breath. And so what Paul is saying about the scripture is that it's God breathed. It's the very words of God. And because the book of Hebrews tells us us that it is impossible for God to lie, we know that these four words, the Bible is true. That's what we're going to affirm today. That because the scripture is God-breathed and because it's impossible for God to lie, the Bible is true. If you're a note taker, jot those four words down for me. The Bible is true. Now, scholars, uh, theologians, Christian thinkers would call this the doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible is without error. You can read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy just recently published. I say recently in the last several decades. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy would say the Bible does not affirm anything that's contrary to fact, but instead of saying the negative today, we are going to say the positive, that the Bible is true when it comes to history, when it comes to science, when it comes to faith and practice, when it comes to family, when it comes to who you are, when it comes to who God is, the Bible is true. And here's why this statement is so relevant for so many of us today. I want to talk to three different types of people. Skeptics and cynics, I'll group you together. Skeptics, you would say, you know what, I'm not sure the Bible is true. I'm pretty skeptical of that text. Or a cynic would say, I'm sure it ain't true. Like, I'm not a Bible person, I reject the Bible. Here's the deal. I would just tell you, you don't know me from Adam, but I would tell you, like, I'm not a delusional person. So I am not under the impression, the false impression, that you're going to walk away when I'm done here in about an hour and a half, two hours, give or take. You're not going to walk away thinking, oh my gosh, he's convinced me that the Bible is true. I'm going to become a Jesus follower and a missionary in Africa. I get that's probably not going to happen if you're a cynic or a skeptic. Just real quick though, that's not beyond the power of God. So buckle up just in case, okay? But I get that. So a win today for you would be that you walk away and go, you know what? He had some pretty good points. He was funny, quirky. His kid's cute. Maybe I'll do my own research. If you do your own research, that's a win for me. If you walk away and say, you know what? Instead of trusting what my professor said and trusting what my drinking buddy said, instead of trusting what my friend said, instead of trusting something else, I'm going to go actually read verifiable, authentic documents and reputable documents and do my own research on the historicity, veracity, and trustworthiness of the scripture. That would be a big win for me. Then I want to talk to Christians who doubt. (laughs) Y'all are going to have to excuse me. I I went into the clinic on Friday with 102 fever. Uh, bronchitis. Mm. So you guys in the front, I'll just apologize in advance for the bronchitis that you're going to get next week. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. 
So I will be drinking water while we talk here. So a couple, this, the second group of people that I want to address is Christians who doubt. Christians who doubt. Can I just tell you this? Just, let's just start here. You know Jesus loves doubters? Loves them. Loves them. You know, because people come to Jesus in the scripture and they say, Lord Jesus, I believe, help my what? Unbelief. Jesus doesn't say, you help yourself. You go do your own thing. What he does, okay, I'll come alongside you. I will help you in your unbelief. So doubters, if I can help support and buttress your faith, if you would walk away from this place going, you know what? That document is a trustworthy document. I, I doubt a little less today. That'd be a win. Then I want to address a group of people that I would call Christians who don't doubt. And for some of you, you don't doubt because you've got a supernatural gift of the spirit called faith and you just trust God. Some of you don't doubt because you have not engaged your brain. And I'm, I want, I, like, I want to be delicate and gracious there. I want to be tender towards you because I, I, get, I get that. But you're too afraid to ask questions because you're afraid if you ask a question, your whole faith might fall apart. And so you trust God with a blind faith and not a reasonable faith, not a thought through faith, not an intellectually honest faith. And you say stuff like, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I like that because that's a statement of total trust. But sometimes it's a smokescreen, isn't it? Sometimes it's a smokescreen. And that smokescreen is, I don't want to have to engage my brain. And listen, God is not afraid of your questions. No matter what question you ask, God is not going to go, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. <laughs> oh, I wish you wouldn't have asked so many questions because now we're all hosed. Like that's not how God is going to respond to your questions. You can engage your brain. The second thing I want to tell you is that in our culture, the Bible said so is no longer an acceptable answer. You get that, right? What's the definition of sexuality? Well, here's what the Bible says. What's the defin of mar definition of marriage? Well, here's what it is. Why do you, why do you believe that? Well, because the Bible said so. Well, that's not an acceptable answer in our culture anymore. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but it is not an acceptable answer. The Bible, the people, people don't just go, oh, the Bible said so. Good, let's just move on. And what Peter would say to you is that you should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you because our faith, you see, is a reasonable faith. It's a logical faith. It's not a blind faith. It's an intellectually honest faith. It's a rigorously thought through faith. And because the Bible said so is no longer an acceptable answer, we've got to have better answers when people ask about the authenticity and trustworthiness of the scripture. Amen? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through three major objections, three and just three. There are more objections than this, but three major objections that people have when it comes to the trustworthiness of Scripture. People say, I don't trust the Bible because X, Y, as we say in Canada, Z, okay? X, Y, Z. Three, we do say Z. Did you guys know that? Who do X, Y, Z here, and in Canada, it's X, Y, Z. I don't know. I think it's more fun. It's more fun to say Z. I don't know. <coughs> I wasn't in my sermon notes, just in case you're wondering. Mm. Three major objections, and I'm going to argue against those three major objections and help us understand why they fall apart. The first objection is this, that the texts are inaccurate. 
the texts are inaccurate. So if you're jotting down notes, you can jot this down. Objection number one, I don't trust the Bible because the texts are not accurate. In other words, what Dawkins would say is true. They've been revised, edited, changed, improved over time. Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, said this. He said, the Bible and the stories within are nothing but old stories fabricated by man and then exaggerated over time. By way of example, originally when someone wrote it down, Jesus fed 12 people. And then about 50 years later, it got exaggerated to 50 people. And then about 100 years later, it got exaggerated to 2,000 people. And then about four or 500 years later, it got exaggerated to 5,000 people. That's not really what happened. That's not really originally what was recorded. It was exaggerated over time. And I would argue against Dan Brown and against Richard Dawkins and against anyone who would say the texts are inaccurate and say that the Bible is absolutely 100% accurate when it comes to the transmission of those texts over time. The Bible that you hold in your hand is the Bible that was originally. I'll give you a couple reasons why. One is because of scribal tradition. This is in the Old Testament now. Scribes were paid a lot of money and went to school for a long time to learn how to copy the manuscripts of the text of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of wisdom, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Why isn't a lot of stuff in there? Uh, Psalms and Proverbs, the books of the prophets. They were paid a lot of money to do that. And scribes would copy those Old Testament documents word for word. You know, it's not true, right? They copied letter for letter. They didn't do word for word. They did letter for letter. And scribes knew exactly how many Hebrew characters were in each one of those Old Testament books. So they would say, there are 5,235 characters in Genesis. And so when they were done copying letter for letter, letter for letter, letter for letter, they would count all of their characters, 5,236. Oh no, one extra. I got to go back and look and find where I added an extra character and fix it. No, they wouldn't do that. They would just destroy what they had spent weeks and months on and start from the beginning. They knew what the middle character was in each one of those books. And so what they were copying from and what they were copying to, if the middle character did not match exactly, they would destroy what they just copied and start again. They were so extraordinarily meticulous when it comes to copying the original documents of Scripture and making sure that those texts were passed down and that they were passed down with total and complete accuracy. Now, check this out. This will blow your mind. The most recent copy of the Old Testament that we have uh, until recently dates from the 9th century AD. And we realize that the Old Testament happened before Jesus. So the most recent copy we had until recently dates from the 9th century AD until a group of documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls was found. There was a shepherd in Palestine. He threw a rock into a cave and instead of hearing a rock hit another rock, he heard a rock break a vase. And he thought, well, that's interesting. Went in and found in these vases copies of every Old Testament book except for Esther. Manuscripts of every Old Testament book except for Esther, dating from the first century. Now we've got a problem, don't we? Because the most recent documents we had dated from the ninth century, and now someone's found documents dating from the first century. Are those documents gonna match? They're 800 years apart. 
How much are they going to match? Are they going to match 50% or 60% or 70%? 80% would be pretty good, I think. And they match 99.5%. The only difference is this 0.5% is the spelling of proper names. That was the only difference. From the ninth century to the first century, 800 years, those documents matched. In other words, the Bible that was is the Bible we have. Those manuscripts have been passed down with accuracy and authenticity over time. Now let's move on to the New Testament, talk about the New Testament. And what I want to do with the New Testament is compare it to other documents of antiquity. Because we can't compare it to Harry Potter, right? We can't compare it to Harry Potter. We got to compare it to other documents that were written around that time. So here are some other documents that were written around that time. Homer wrote around that time. Next slide, please. Uh, Herodotus wrote around that time. Plato. These are the people that wrote around that time. NT is New Testament. These folks are writing the 5th century BC, 3rd century. We're going to compare apples to apples. Make sense? Okay. Then gaps means, go back one side if you would. Go back one side. There we go. What we're talking about when we say gap here is from when they were written to the earliest manuscript we have. Does that make sense? The gap in years from when those documents were written to the earliest manuscript that we, we have. Then the uh, pound MSS means number of manuscripts we have. Because you understand, we don't have original manuscripts of any of these people, including the New Testament. Like, we don't have any of Paul's stuff where it says, you know, thank you, Galatians, for reading my letter. Hugs and kisses, Paul. We don't have that. Okay, we don't have, we have copies of copies of copies. Same as all of these guys. And so when textual critics look at these documents and determine their authenticity, the shorter the gap the more authentic the document. Make sense? And the more manuscripts that we have to compare to one another and compile in order to get the truest sense of that document, the more we have, the more authentic the document. Is everybody with me? Okay, let's talk about the gap. The gap between when Homer wrote and our earliest manuscript is 400 years. The gap between when Herodotus wrote, you're reading him in school, from when he wrote to when we actually have a manuscript is 1,350 years. Plato 1,300 years gap, 950, 750 for the rest of these guys. When it comes to the New Testament, the gap between when those authors wrote and our earliest manuscript is 40 years. I mean, it's a fraction of other texts of antiquity that no one calls into question. You read that stuff in school and everybody goes, Plato wrote this. You're like, How do you know Plato wrote it? <laughs> Plato wrote it. Plato wrote it. And then we have a manuscript 1,300 years later? I mean, that's for texts of antiquity. That, that, that makes sense. That's a verifiable document. And it's only 40 years for the New Testament. Well, let's talk about the number of manuscripts. Because you see, we don't have originals of any of these folks either. We only have copies of copies. So how many copies of copies do we have? Let's look at them. We have almost 1,800 for Homer. We have 210 for, who is this? Plato, we have only 33, 33 copies of copies with a 750-year gap for Tacitus, and you read them in school all the time. And so for the New Testament to surpass all of these in terms of the number of manuscripts we have, well, let's say 1,800, that's what we need. But 2,000 really put us over the edge. 3,000, 4,000, how many do we have? Over 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament. And that's just if you count the Greek. You want to count Latin? We're at 24,000. <clears throat> uh, atheist 
anti-Christian scholars would say that the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is unsurpassed in terms of its, in terms of its authenticity when it, comes from, when it comes to a text of antiquity. Let me say that again and not stumble over my words. Atheist scholars, anti-Christian scholars would say that the New Testament is unsurpassed in terms, of its, in terms of its authenticity if you compare it to other texts of antiquity. The gap between when they wrote and our earliest manuscripts is so small and the number of manuscripts we have means we know the Bible that was is the Bible we have. What you hold in your hand those texts, that translation is accurate. It's not been exaggerated over time. The, the data simply does not bear that out. Objection number two this is the Bible's not historically accurate. The Bible is not historically accurate. It's got history errors, it's got historical errors. Okay, the first thing that I want to challenge you with and just put kind of a feather in your cap, and it's a little bit related to the message, and, and, and maybe kind of tuck this in the back of, your, uh, back of your mind as you read the Bible, is the Bible is not a history book, but it is historical. So when we read the Bible as if it's a modern history book, as if it's a D.R. Made McCullough text or something like that, as if, as if we're reading a historical textbook like you read in university, you're going to miss the point in a lot of ways because it's not a history book. Now, it is historically accurate, and God did enter into a specific time and place in history, but it's not a history book. And listen, the Bible is different than other uh, spiritual textbooks. And here's how it's different. Because most other spiritual textbooks don't talk about God entering into a specific time and place in history. You get that, right? They talk about how to achieve enlightenment or how to achieve nirvana or how to achieve peace or make yourself a better life or whatever. But God comes along, the Bible comes along and says that Jesus, God in the flesh, entered into a very specific time and place in history. And it's a historically verifiable book. Look how great uh, the pains are for Luke as he writes his gospel to tell us that God entered into a very specific time and place in history. Look what he writes. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Are we confused as to when this happened? <laughs> Are we confused as to where this happened? Luke wants us to know that God entered into a very specific time and place in history, and he goes to great pains to make it very, very clear. So if we can undermine the historicity of Scripture, we can undermine the authenticity and trustworthiness of Scripture from a general perspective. But unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for you and me, we can't undermine the historicity of Scripture because all things that we discovered over time point to the historical authenticity of the Bible itself. Let's look at archaeology, for instance. Uh, the Bible talks about a pool in Jerusalem uh, that had five roofed colonnades. For my Canadian friends, that's like five awesome patios, okay? So five roofed colonnades. And for a very long time, archaeologists said, the Bible is not telling the truth. That place doesn't exist. There is no place in Jerusalem with five roofed colonnades. Until about five years ago, when we were digging in Jerusalem, not we, not me. I don't want to be out in the heat. Ugh. No, but someone was digging in Jerusalem. And what did they discover? A pool 
with five roofed colonnades. And all those historians said, well, there's some other stuff too, right? But for so long, I said, well, we've never discovered it. Therefore, it didn't exist. And now it's been discovered. For a long time, people said Solomon did not have horses. The Bible says he had horses. Solomon didn't have horses. Until the excavations at the Valley of Megiddo, they found part of Solomon's empire. And during that excavation, they found thousands of stalls for what? Horses. Whereas archaeologists would say horses didn't exist in that time and place in history, so Solomon didn't have horses. Lo and behold, Solomon had horses. Lots of folks would say that the Hittites didn't exist. They're all over the Old Testament. Now archaeologists have found evidence that this group of people called the Hittites did, in fact, exist. Fast forward to the New Testament. Let's look at the Gospels. Now stick with me on this, and I'm going to start moving pretty fast here as if I'm not already. All right? Stick with me here and dial it in. Don't be playing Candy Crush on your phone and posting on Instagram, playing Angry Birds, okay, whatever it is. Stick with me. There are four biographies of the life of Jesus included in the scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of those four biographies, only one of them was written within the geographical context of the events it reports. That's Matthew. It was written within Judea where the events of the gospels took place. Luke wrote his gospel from Antioch, likely. Mark wrote his from Rome and John wrote his from Ephesus. All of them outside of the place where the gospels and the events of the, 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 events of the gospels took place. So what we would say to those authors is, you're writing from outside of this area. Do you understand the culture, the mores, the food, uh, the, the social etiquette, the agriculture, the botany the, the botany, the geography? Do you understand all of those things about the places you're writing about? It's as if someone was living in Los Angeles and writing about New York. They better know New York like the back of their hand if we're going to trust that document. Does that make sense? Okay, so of those three, three gospels, all of them write from outside of, of uh, the place where the gospels took place. Now, in the second and third century, uh, there were some additional gospels, purported gospels, the gospel of Philip and the gospel of Thomas. Uh, those are not in your Bible. They're not verifiable gospels. They're not authentic gospels. But those two gospels mention two cities and two cities only. In the third and fourth century, there were other gospels written. Gospels, not in your Bible, not authentic. They mentioned no cities at all. Why? Because they weren't familiar with that time and place. They weren't familiar with that area. If you combine Luke and Acts together, because he wrote both of them, Luke mentions 60 cities, 39 countries, and nine islands. Why? Because he was intimately familiar with first century Judea and the location in which the events of the gospels took place because it's a historically verifiable document. It's historically accurate. Now watch this. I want to share something else. I could share like a thousand things as to why they're historically accurate, but this is amazing. Okay, in 2003, there was a study released about the most popular names for Jewish boys born in first century Palestine, scintillating read. Doesn't it sound like it? I don't know who does this research. Who in the right mind is thinking about I want to do a paper on the most popular baby names for boys in first century Palestine. 
Jewish boys in first century Palestine. Well, that study combined the scripture, but it also combined all these other documents and fragments of documents to see what was the most popular name or what were the most popular names for boys in first century Palestine, Jewish boys in first century Palestine. Seven of them are up here on the screen. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, and Ananias, most popular names. Those names look familiar because they're all in the Bible. You know why they're in the Bible? Because nobody's making up names. These were the most popular names for kids at that time, for boys at that time. <clears throat> what that study's shown is that 40% of boys born, uh, Jewish boys born in first century Palestine, 40% of them were named one of those top 10 names. You know what percent of males in scripture are named one of those top 10 names? 41. Why? Because they're historical documents. Now, you may think to yourself, you know, just because, you know, there's probably it's, it's Jewish boys. So no matter where you're writing from, they're going to be about the same set of popular names. Even if you're not writing from uh, that, that uh, area of Judea, even if you're not writing from there, if you're writing from outside of there, you're going to have the same set of names. Uh, au contraire. <laughs> so let's look at the most popular names from Egypt, Jewish boys born in Egypt during that time. Eleazar, Sabbateus, Joseph, Docetus, Pappas, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. Only a couple of them look familiar, right? Why? Because these are names of boys from Egypt, most popular names of Jewish boys born in Egypt, not in Judea. And most of these don't show up in the scripture, at least not very often, because they weren't as popular. Side note, if you're pregnant, I will give you $10 to name your boy Docetus. $10. Brand new, crisp $10 bill. Now, let's keep going with this names and naming thing because I think it adds, uh, it adds uh, weight to this veracity of the historical veracity of the scripture. Um, have you ever read the list of the apostles' names in the Bible, like in the book of Matthew? And the 12 apostles were these, and, and, and you read all the names, 12 names. Have you ever wondered why some of them have caveats and some of them don't? Like, raise your hand if you've read the names of the apostles in the Bible. Okay, when you read those names, some of them have little caveats, right? And some of them don't. Let's read it. It's up here on the screen. Watch. Uh, the names of the 12 apostles, this is from Matthew, are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. There's a caveat. And Andrew, his brother, caveat. James, the son of Zebedee, caveat. And John, his brother, caveat. But now, Philip and Bartholomew, no caveat. Thomas, no caveat. Matthew, the tax collector, caveat. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, no caveat. Simon, the zealot, caveat. And Judas Iscariot, caveat. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Why do some have caveats and some do not? Well, some of those names were extraordinarily popular, so they necessitated a caveat. I can't ask you, do you know Bob? <laughs> like, which Bob? I need you to explain that a little more. But if I asked you, do you know Docetus? You either do or you don't. I don't need to tell you what Docetus' last name is, all right? It's just Docetus. So let's read that exact same text again. And what I'm going to highlight is the ranking of how popular each of those names were. And watch what Matthew does. He says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Simon, most popular name for Jewish boys born in first century Palestine, who is called Peter. That's why there's a caveat. Just so you know, Simon is all over the scripture. And every time there's a caveat, Simon the Cyrene, Simon the Tanner, Simon called Peter. Why? Because it was the most popular name. You needed a caveat. Andrew, 14th most popular name. His brother, 
needs a caveat. James, 11th most popular name, needs a caveat, the son of Zebedee. John, 5th most popular name, needs a caveat, and it's his brother, son of Zebedee, brother of James. Philip, 51st most popular name, does not need a caveat. Bartholomew, 50th most popular name, doesn't need a caveat. Thomas doesn't even make the top 100. <laughs> no caveat. Matthew needs a caveat. Matthew who? The tax collector. James, 11th most popular. We've already seen a James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, 39th most popular. No caveat. Simon, again, first most popular. The zealot, caveat. And Judas, fourth most popular. Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's not nearly as popular a name. These days, uh, Judas isn't. <laughs> What am I trying to tell you here? I'm trying to tell you that the authors of scripture are writing about history. They're not writing about myth and legend. And what we know now is that history affirms and illuminates scripture. The more we discover about history, that study was released in 2003 by, I mean, by, by a, it's not even a Christian study. It's just most popular names for Jewish boys born in fourth century, first century Palestine. And what the study bears out is that the scripture knows what it's talking about. It helps us understand scripture even more. This is a historically verifiable document. His, history does not undermine the authority and authenticity of the scripture. Objection number three, it's not scientifically accurate. This one really grates my cheese, boy. Mm. It really does. It really does. Okay. So, and I'm not even sure how, to, how I want to go through this. Let, let me figure it out real quick. Okay, so here's, here's the first thing I want to say. Same thing about history is that the Bible is not a science book, but it is scientific. So if we read the Bible as if it's a scientific textbook, as if it's a modern textbook, or if it's, as, it's, as if it's a modern newspaper or a modern journal, we are superimposing a modern mindset over an ancient mindset, and we will very likely miss all of God's point or at least a good portion of it. But it is scientifically accurate. And when people say that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate, can I clue you in on something? A lot of times it's user error. A lot of times it's us as readers misinterpreting the scripture. A lot of times it's our culture that's created this goofy like pit faith and science against one another. And you can either be a person of faith or you can be a person of science but you can't be both. You ever feel that in culture? You ever feel that? I feel that. I felt that. And what I did in university or in, in, in seminary is I started to do some research and I discovered where that kind of false bifurcation and false binary came from. So stick with me here. What I want to do is talk a little bit about Genesis 1 through 3, the creation account, because so many people, when the, they say the Bible is not scientifically accurate, they point to the creation account and they say, you see... You see, that, is not, that does not align with science. And watch, here's what happened. At the end of the 19th century, a man named Charles Darwin wrote a book called On the Origin of Species. You might have heard about that, where he uh, first kind of scratched the surface of evolutionary theory. And evolutionary theory began to, just so everybody knows, don't panic, I'm not going to like affirm evolution here, all right? So you don't have to squirm in your seats, all right? I just want to track with you why there's this false bifurcation of these two positions. Uh, on the Origin of Species kind of scratched the surface of evolutionary theory, and it began to gain traction. So in the early 20s, 
20th century, there was a group of Christians who decided we should probably respond to this, publish a Christian response to this. One of those men was a man named B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, which was a very conservative seminary at the time. This was the early 20th century. A very, very smart man who upheld the inerrancy of Scripture. We owe B.B. Warfield a great debt of gratitude for maintaining and perpetuating this critical doctrine of inerrancy in the church. And here's what B.B. Warfield said about evolutionary theory. First, it's just a theory. It's just a theory. Second, let's say that evolutionary theory, not as it's been warped, but in its purest form, what Darwin said about natural selection and some of those things, like let's say we actually prove that that theory is correct. Everybody understands that that does not undermine the historical or the authenticity and the scientific accuracy of the scripture. Because in Genesis chapter one through three, God's not really concerned about you understanding how long it took him to create. He wants us to know why he created and what he created and what the purpose of his creation is. And when we squabble and fight over how long, and not, not in a, like, let's sharpen each other and discuss and have robust intellectual discussion, that's really great. But when that causes division and disunity in the church, now we got a problem. Fast forward to the Scopes Monkey Trial. Here's what happened in the Scopes Monkey Trial that folks wanted to teach evolutionary theory in schools, and then there were others that wanted to teach creation in schools. And in order to win that trial that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, instead of saying, you know, there are a bunch of different ways we can kind of look at this thing, the lawyers, the attorneys in the Scopes Monkey Trial said, there's one of two positions. One position is you are a theist, that is you believe in God, you are a creationist that God created ex nihilo, that is to say out of nothing, and you are a young earth person. That means you add up all the genealogies in the scripture and it's between six and 15,000 years old. That's how old the earth is. That is one position, we will teach that in schools. And then on the other hand, you had attorneys over here that said, atheistic big bang theory something came from nothing and evolutionary theory and old earth and there was nothing in between these two things no intellectual honesty no curiosity no people unpacking the scripture and really under, really understanding science not because they didn't necessarily want to but because that's the way you win an argument at the supreme court does that ever, does everybody understand that one group played to the right and said this is one Position. If you are a theist, you have to be a young earth and you have to be creation next to heal and all these things. And over here, if you, and, and, and if, you, if you're not that, then you're an atheist, evolutionary theorist, and you believe in an old earth. And there are a lot of other options in between. In fact, a guy named Mark Driscoll, who's a pastor here in town, wrote a book called Doctrine. The subtitle is What Christians Should Believe. That subtitle should tell you that Mark Driscoll does not lack for opinions. Like, I like this guy. I like his stuff. I read his stuff. But he is an opinionated guy. He will tell you what he thinks. And in that book, he says there are no less than five ways. I believe there are more than five. No less than five ways to interpret and understand Genesis 1 through 3 that fall within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. It's not just that 
or that. It's not just faith or science. You don't get both because science affirms and illuminates the scripture just as history affirms and illuminates the scripture. This has been going on for a very long time. In the 15th century, there was a guy named Galileo. You may have heard of him. And he said this really wacky thing that the earth revolved around the sun. And the church said, you're nuts. And even Martin Luther, who was a little nuts himself, said, Galileo, you're nuts. And lo and behold, we do not live in a geocentric universe. We live in a heliocentric universe. Yes, the earth revolves around the sun. And you know who Galileo followed his whole life? Jesus. See, science and faith working together. The more we discover about science, the more the Bible makes sense. In other words, science affirms and illuminates scripture. The more we discover about science, the more we read the Bible and go, oh yeah, that makes more sense. And the more we take the Bible and superimpose it over the top of science and read science through the lens of scripture, the more we go, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Even for Galileo, it's like, you're telling me I'm not the center of the universe? And God's going, I've been telling you that for a lot longer than Galileo has, right? Well, Wayne Grudem is one of my favorite theologians. He uh, used to be an elder here. He's preached here multiple times. Look what Wayne Grudem writes in his systematic theology. He says, we should never fear, but always welcome any new facts that may be discovered in any legitimate area of human research or study. In other words, he's saying, Christians, please don't be afraid of science. Uh, faith and science are not mutually exclusive. They're not pitted against one another. They're not at war with one another. We should welcome any new facts in any legitimate area of human research or study because the Bible is not going to be undermined or undercut. It is true. God is not scared of scientific discovery. He created it. We should not be scared of scientific discovery discovery. So what we've done is we've gone through three objections, that the texts are not accurate, it's not historically accurate, and it's not scientifically accurate, and we've argued against each of those. So what I want to do is wrap up by kind of saying something pretty pointed to skeptics and cynics in the room, something that might be a little bit difficult, and typically I don't like hammer skeptics and cynics very much. Typically I'm on Christians a little bit, which I think I've done a little bit. But uh, typically I don't do this to skeptics and cynics. But, but I want to bring something to your attention that might be a little bit challenging to hear. And in order to do that, I want to wrap it with a really cute story about my daughter. Okay? Just so it feels a little softer. <laughs> So here she is. This is my daughter. Her name is Kaya. Uh, we took this back in February. She's like on some kind of fake horse or something. So she's almost four years old and she's so cute, so cute. And she has absolutely zero social etiquette, which is awesome. Um, because when we were flying home together on Valentine's Day, we were flying home from here on Valentine's Day. She was my little Valentine, the two of us. Uh, we're on a plane and I don't know how to say this delicately, but somebody was tooting on the plane. So, and some of you are nodding. You ever been on a plane where somebody's tooting? And all, all the hey, you just keep getting a whiff of something and you're going, oh man, this is bad. Homie, like you need to cut out dairy or something because this is, this is a bad situation. <clears throat> so there are four or five of these situations where this person's cutting wind and Kaya keeps smelling it, right? And about the fourth time, she literally goes like this. <laughs> And at the top of her lungs goes, 
Daddy, what's that kind of smell? <laughs> I said, I'm trying to be cool, right? I'm like, well, I think maybe somebody's tummy hurts, babe. Maybe somebody's, maybe somebody's tooting a little bit. And she goes, I, not a word of a lie. She goes like this. And what's, it's not me. I, was, I didn't say it was you, babe. I didn't say it was you, but like, maybe someone is. At the top of her lungs, my daughter looks around the plane and goes like this. Who's tooting? Who is tooting? Because this, it smells. Who is tooting? <laughs> and look, here's the thing. I was bothered by it too, so I didn't stop her. I'm like, yeah, somebody own it. Just own it for me. That's all I want you to do. Just say, man, I took a couple of free ones. You know what I mean? I don't know. <clears throat> Nobody likes to be called out for tooting on a plane. Nobody likes it. All right, so that's the cute story about my kids. So here's skeptic and cynic. I'm going to call you out in a very kind of similar way. The reason that you don't think the Bible is true is not because you've done the research most of the time about the history of the Bible, about the scientific accuracy of the Bible, about the textual transmission. It's not because you've not done the research, or it's not because you've done the research. It's simply because of this statement right here, that you don't want it to be true. You don't want that kind of accountability in your life. You don't want to have to respond to God's call for you. You don't want to have to bow the knee to Jesus. And so the way that you excuse yourself from doing that is you say it's not historically accurate, it's not scientifically accurate, and the texts have been exaggerated over time, so I don't have to respond to it. And so hopefully what I've done for you today is said, you know what? That's not okay. Because it is scientifically accurate. It is historically accurate. It, it, the texts are accurate for the, from the original. And so here at the very least, skeptics and cynics, if you would just say, well, I don't like it. I don't want it. So it's not about the history. It's not about the science. It's not about the text. It's about me. I don't want it. Because as long as you're honest about that, then we can have an honest conversation. You can have an honest conversation with God. But the more you put up that smoke screen and lie to yourself, the more trouble you're in. Here's what we're affirming today, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God, so it's true, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here in the worship center, venue, chapel, listening online at Cactus Campus, let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. We are so, so grateful, God, that your word is true, that is breathed out by God and that we can trust every word of it. God, teach us to be a people who live under the word and respond to the call of the scripture. In Jesus' name, the people of God together said, amen.